Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. I uh, had a number of plans to start off this show today, but uh, they all changed in the last 25 minutes. I pre-recorded an interview with a pain specialist, Dr. Mary Redmond from the Ottawa area. And that interview made such an impression on me that I've decided we're going to run it here at the beginning of the show. We'll play it again for you tomorrow. We were actually going to play it tomorrow. But I'm going to play it for you now because what's happening as far as the pain issue is concerned, the chronic pain issue, and as you know, on this program, we've taken the patient side, the chronic pain patient or the chronic agony patient side and questioned the governments and questioned the medical authorities who to me have an agenda and are not telling the truth and are causing problems for people, causing people to be terrified. I'm getting emails from Canada, the United States, Europe, an email from Sydney, Australia, from terrified patients. Here's an example of one. Um, Do you know any people in the United States like you trying to make people question what they're doing to pain patients? I fear each month what will happen to my appointment. I've thought long and hard about what I would do if I lost access to my pain medication. Would my family be better without having me to live with in my pain? How bad would my suicide hurt my kids, especially my youngest, as he isn't old enough to understand or care for himself? That's a young mother. And they happen. They come in one after another, after another, after another. Here's an email that begins, Mr. Green, I cannot thank you enough for the work you're doing on behalf of chronic pain patients. I'm a patient advocate and have been terribly concerned about these issues for a number of years. I have one client who's literally dying because of the cessation of his opioid treatment. The current climate of fear among physicians and patients is truly frightening to witness in a supposedly free and open society like Canada in the 21st century. Remember the interview that I did with the Federal Minister of Health, Dr. Jane Philpott? Here's how it started. Dr. Philpott, why is all the talk from governments about painkillers instead of pain? You do know that people who take painkillers, people who take opioids, do it just to make life tolerable. Well, I think that's a fantastic point, and uh, I think you're absolutely right that... uh, Uh, It's a fair point that the conversation needs to be around the pain and recognizing that when people do take uh, substances that uh, are used for controlling pain, it's because they have pain, sometimes uh, physical, sometimes psychological, but uh, the pain is uh, certainly should be a central theme to this conversation. So, no answer. As I said to the minister about question four, you haven't answered any of my questions yet. Why they don't answer the questions if they don't have answers to the questions? Because it is such a mess. Have a listen now, please. If you've been following along with us, and you've heard the pain patients, like Dawn Ray Downton, who'll be with us tomorrow with her husband, and if you've heard the doctors, some of whom are trying to sell this whole issue of opioids bad. They are bad if they're misused. But for the pain patient, please have a listen to my conversation Dr. Mary Redmond, pain specialist from the Ottawa area. Dr. Redmond, chronic pain patients, maybe more accurately, chronic agony patients, are now almost universally terrified. Their opioid medications will be dramatically reduced or entirely withheld by doctors who previously 
regularly prescribe their dosages. Are doctors under pressure from governments and regulating medical colleges to to cut back and maybe to entirely withhold opioid medications? In the short answer with that would be probably yes, Roy, because but we don't know where it's headed right now because they they were waiting to see the response individual colleges and ministries of health across the country. And certainly there has been, the BC College was one of the first ones to uh, respond when the Center for Disease Control uh, new guidelines came out a few months ago. And they uh, they put in a set of rules that were you know, quite a dramatic change, basically, that if patients were um, greater than, uh, say, 90 milligrams of uh, morphine or its equivalent per day, uh, they, the doses would have to be uh, strategically weaned, and that if they were on the ben- one of the benzodiazepines, such as Valium, Ativan, or Clonazepam, that they would only be able to stay on it as long as it took to wean them off it. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Owen Williamson in BC, he was the uh, head of the pain physicians BC, he negotiated with them to get them to, to you know, back off the pace a little bit and uh, initiate this in a more uh, gradual pattern. But patients were very, very frightened and very desperate. And the other colleges across the country, they haven't come up with a position yet. In Ontario, what has happened is that the Ministry of Health sent the college here a list of most of the pain physicians in uh, the province and required the college to investigate their practices. So that's about nearly 100 different pain doctors. And they're, they're putting in place a lot of restrictions for the physicians, a lot, or requesting that they have supervisors and so forth. And it's frightening the patients to death, and it's frightening doctors who normally wouldn't feel too uncomfortable with prescribing some pain medications for a patient. It's making them pretty terrified to start doing so right now. Boy, isn't that terrifying? That's terrifying in and of itself when you have patients and doctors terrified uh-huh. over the same issue. And then we have the manipulation of statistics and information. Much of the trotted out information on deaths due to opioid overdoses has to do with generic drug addicts buying illegal uncontrolled drugs on the street corners and nothing to do with chronic pain patients who carefully follow their prescriptions and gain some quality of life from the opioids where there was none before. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely agree. And the, the part of the difficulty too is the changing culture. In the in the early in say two thousand to two thousand and ten, uh, basically most physicians were hearing such things as from the World Health Organization that pain control is a basic human right. And we were encouraged to give patients what if the patient said they had pain, treat their pain. And increase the doses as long as you were seeing a progressive improvement in function and so forth. But then um, the, the whole culture has changed in since 2010. It's gra- it was gradual. It was just a suggestion that, you know, be more cautious about prescribing it or increasing the doses. But now with the fentanyl crisis and one thing and another in, um, across the country, you're right. People are jumping uh, uh, to the conclusions that this must have something to do with prescribed opioids and that there's really no connection. No, there, there really isn't. And... Uh, we now have patients increasingly, uh, and I'm just going by statistics or at least emails that I'm seeing from uh, all over the world after I've been speaking about it and posting about this issue. 
And we have patients increasingly talking about committing suicide and being quite serious about it. I have an email in front of me. I just want to read you a, a few lines. This came from an American. Do you know of any people in the United States like you trying to make people question what they're doing to uh, pain patients? I fear each month what will happen to my appointment. Uh, I have, though, thought long and hard about what I would do if I lost access to my pain medication. Would my family be better off without having me live with my pain how bad would my suicide hurt my kids, especially my youngest, as he isn't old enough to understand or care for himself? So we have a young mom uh, thinking wow. about, actively thinking about killing herself and wondering whether it's appropriate for her to kill herself before her youngest child becomes dependent on her. That's a tragic, tragic, even that few, those few words, that's a tragic picture to bring into one's head. And and it it should not this should not be something that people and it happens about. it happens again and again, Doctor Redmond, as you know. Well, it, it I do, I, I, but I'm seeing colleagues right now with this business with our college here. There are colleagues who are being forced to stop practice or who are forcing choosing to stop practicing pain medication management because of the the, the drawn out battle with the college, and these patients are going to be left high and dry. There'll be nobody to look after them. I, it's it's just it's very very sad mess. That's that's again I've used the word before. That's terrifying. Doctors giving up the practice of pain management because they don't want to be dealing with the oversight, the inconsistent oversight of colleges and governments, and so now patients will be left uh, without a doctor. And then you add to that the curve of retiring physicians who are getting older. And the situation becomes particularly distressing. I received an email the other day from uh, someone who's actually going to be on the air with me uh, shortly. And uh, population of Canada, 36 million. The percentage over age 20, 78% or 28 million. Uh, the percentage in chronic pain, 20%, 5.6 million. And the percentage of people or the number of people projected to kill themselves, commit suicide, because of... Not being having not having access to their opioids, one percent or fifty six thousand people committing suicide. Oh, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely 56, heartbreaking. And I, I know a personal, well, it's personal uh, friends who have had to give or having to give up their practice through no choice of their own, and they don't know it's. There's nothing more heartbreaking for a physician than having to abandon their patients, and it's, it's heartbreaking to think what these patients can do. If they're suddenly abandoned like that, they may have to go to methadone or suboxone clinics and profess to be addicts to get anything resembling treatment, and that's even more stigmatizing than than chronic pain is. I don't know what to say, because what, what what I'm asking myself is, how is this allowed to happen? Who allowed this to become so completely out of control? Now, I spoke with Dr. Lynn Webster, the past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. And his position is that insurance companies started it in the United States because of their reluctance to pay for prescriptions, particularly for prescriptions for war veterans. And, uh, and this is what got the CDC involved, and there was a not even half-thought-out policy that has been run with madly, and we are where we are. We now have, as you said, your colleagues giving up pain management, patients without doctors, uh, projections of 56,000 people in this country committing suicide. And I speak with the Federal Minister of Health, and I don't expect you to comment on this, and she has no answers for me. 
I asked for hard numbers. She said, we don't have them. I asked her what pain patients are addicted to. She had no idea what I was asking. And I said, Minister, what they're addicted to is living without pain. And so where are we going to be in a year's time, Dr. Redmond, if this is not addressed? And I suspect, my guess is, you tell me, in a year's time, there will be further withdrawal, further rejection of the use of opioids, and there'll be more desperate people with terrible consequences. I, I, I'm afraid that that may well happen. I don't know what, what I'm going, we're going day by day here because I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't, we don't know what our college and our, uh, is going to set out as recommendations, and we don't know how many of our, my colleagues will have their practices uh, curtailed severely. It's, it's very worrying. And it, it also makes us feel relatively helpless because I don't even know who to approach to see if anything might be changed. You don't know anyone to approach. If you don't know as a physician, how is the patient supposed to react? The patient doesn't have a doctor. I would consider patients who have you as a doctor would be blessed. But they, if, 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 if they hear your, your fears... That will well, only, I, I have about 1,200 active wow. chronic pain patients, wow. and they most, many of them have been with me like 12 to 20 years. Yeah. But I'm, uh, they ask me such questions as, what happens to me if you die? I'm, I'm, I'm shortly going to be 65, and I tell them, I really don't have a plan in place for that. But to, to, in seriousness, they are worried. They're worried what happens if I'm not there. And I will be as long as I, as long as I physically can be, but we just don't know. As you say, the pain doctors are aging. Yeah. And this is just uh, with the population, and uh, I, we don't know where the next couple of years are going to take it. And this is so unnecessary. I agree. All that but has to it's, happen. It's, it's, well, we, all, we, all that I think needs to happen is probably to have more conversation about what happens next. Mm-hmm. What, if the, if the, how is this going to be? managed in a way that still treats the patients with respect and respects the fact that if 20 to 30 percent of the population has chronic pain, this is not something that can be just dismissed. The the new uh, opioid guidelines are suggesting that no patient should be given more than the equivalent of 50 milligrams of morphine a day. To patients who are not on pain medications, that sounds like a fair lot, but that's the equivalent probably of something like taking probably six oxycocet percocets per day is roughly the same amount of medication, and that's not a horrendously high dose. And they also the guidelines do are, are put in place for all patients. I have a patient who's 6 foot 10 and 300 pounds. I have little ladies who are, who are barely 5 feet tall and 70 years old. They, the same restrictions shouldn't apply to both if they have to apply to anyone. No. Dr. Mary Redmond pain specialist in the Ottawa area. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. A Canadian, Amor Fatui, uh, is responsible, or is being charged with, the terrorist knife attack on a police officer in Flint, Michigan, and United States media with the security and terrorism analysts I've been watching on TV the last couple of days. They're... Uh, looking at Canada and talking about this country as a country of concern as far as potential terrorists living here is concerned. It's not the first time we've heard that, of course. With me, uh, Dr. Zudi Jasser, a regular contributor to the program. We appreciate it greatly. Former United States Navy Lieutenant Commander, 
I've got to give you the Canadian pronunciation, founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, and he's the author of The Battle for the Soul of Islam. Judy, good to talk to you. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Roy. Rahil Raza, Pakistani-Canadian journalist, media consultant, anti-racism activist, human rights activist, interfaith discussion leader. She's also the author of Their Jihad, Not My Jihad, and always, always directly speaks her mind. Rahil, it's uh, just like with with Zudi, it's, it's always an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for having us, uh, Roy, and hello, Zudi. I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said, the last part. I, I said thank you for having us. Okay. Um, having a little bit of trouble with my headphones, or my ears, one or the other. The attack in Flint, Zudi, let me start with you. What's being said in the United States, that it's a Canadian issue or that it's a... Uh, a jihadist ISIS issue? Is Canada being looked at with more concern? What's being said? What's going on? Well, I think two things. First of all, you have to look at what he said uh, before he tried to kill the officer. He said, you've killed people in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and we're all going to die. Uh, they're looking at this uh, similar to uh, Mohammed Boulel, who committed the act in Nice. He was also of Tunisian origin, had been radicalized not only from Tunisia, but in prison. Uh, this guy, uh, uh, surprising, uh, had a family of three, almost 50 years old, so he doesn't fit some of the profile. But bottom line is, is he was radicalized by a theopolitical ideology that demonized the West, uh, didn't look at uh, Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq as Muslim problems, but looked upon it as conspiratorial issues. From the Canadian perspective, uh, the only thing I've seen talk is, you know, the the border issue. He drove in uh, from Canada, drove through uh, uh, Pennsylvania, into New York, drove through Pennsylvania, Ohio, and then somehow landed in Flint and, and committed this act to attack police officers uh, and uh, obviously was motivated as part of the global jihad. So um, I, I think it's sort of the same thing we see in Europe where these people traverse different, con- different countries in the EU and are not uh, found and uh, at the time we could have found them at the border, uh, there was no attention to uh, ideo- ideology. We still don't know that much about his background to see if there were any red flags, if he was a known wolf or not. Uh, but uh, a lot of this is being looked at. Rahil, does this individual, and the, the fact that he's 49 years of age, d- does this raise any flags with you? And I, I just want to f- I'll, I'll complete my question by adding I just happened to, simultaneously, as I was going over this, this story, just happened to find your open letter to Canadians in 2014 or 15. Is, is there a connection? What, is the, what does this say to you, this attack? Well, um, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, first of all, uh, the fact that uh, there are uh, jihadist cells in Canada and that our youth have been radicalized and that there are problems. Uh, is nothing new. This is something that has been investigated. If you read security reports, speak to the um, security agency, you will know that there has always been concern about Canada being considered a sort of a safe haven by the jihadists because, um, you know, the laws are lax. There is a sort of a porous border uh, where they have gone back and forth. So, uh, you know, this is nothing new. It doesn't come as a surprise. Uh, however, uh, I also find sometimes that when the focus is on, you know, where was the person from, you know, from Canada, America, Europe, it uh, takes away from, from the real issue that we need to be talking about. You know, uh, they say lone wolf, but the ideology is the same for all of them. 
we just need to connect the dots. And the bigger question that we need to be asking is not whether he was from Canada or whether he was a lone wolf. The jihadists who have uh, planned this global uh, sort of global attack against the West will keep on erupting from anywhere that they can. The question is, uh, as Azudi put it so well, is the geopolitical ideology that is fueling them. Uh, you know, who is radicalizing them? Where are they getting this, these messages from? And how quickly can we fan out the flames of this uh, ideology? How can we find ways in which we can tackle the ideology that lies at the root cause of the radicalization that eventually leads to terrorism? Now, supporters mean absolutely nothing to these individuals. No, they border- don't mean anything. Now, borders mean something to us, but not to them. They have no borders. They have an ideology. Yes, and the West, uh, you know, blanketly is their enemy. So whether it's Europe, whether it's UK, America, Canada, they will keep on popping up. It's a whack-a-mole game. Uh, you know, you put out one fire, they will pop up somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But I still don't see as much the focus on the ideology, on, you know, what it, where is that coming from. In many cases, these are people who were born and brought up in the West. They have been taught this. Uh, the messaging is coming from, uh, you know, locals. We need to tackle that issue first before we start uh, asking questions about where they have come from. Radicalizing doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And and so clearly there are individuals and there are, I would imagine, organizations that are actively engaging and radicalizing. And now, unless our authorities are completely asleep at the switch or unless they're completely wrapped up in political correctness and are afraid to step forward because if they say, we believe that there's something untoward going on here and we need to address it, um, unless both of those things are happening, then there's... Total confusion everywhere. Zudi, Let me make a quick, sorry, yeah. a quick mention here because it ties in exactly to, to what you're saying. You know, the Quebec Premier, uh, Coyard, made a comment which was on the front page of the National Post yesterday in which he said that Muslims are responsible also for looking out for what is happening within their communities. He's been slammed and been called racist, you know, for associating Islam and terror. The point is that that is exactly what we have been saying, that reformist Muslims, Muslims facing tomorrow, our organization, is that we have to stand up uh, to the plate and also take some responsibility for what's happening within our communities because the future of our next generations depends on but, of course, we've got M103, we've got the whole Islamophobia, victim ideology, boogeyman. So you're right, political correctness and fear stops people from speaking out. They get slammed as being racist and bigots. Sudi, what about that? Is, is, is political correctness and the, and the fear of being labeled hold, stopping people, even qualified authorities may understand that here's an individual who is problematic, or here is an organization that we believe is problematic. Are they taking a hands-off attitude because of political correctness? Is that that one of the issues, or is that not an issue at all? Oh, it's it's a major issue, because what it does is it prevents the engagement with the ideas that are the underbelly. And let me tell you the classic hypocrisy. You know, many of us, as much as I, I think it's a very proportionally different issue, when you saw the attack in uh, London against the Finsbury Mosque uh, or the attack in Quebec where six Muslims were killed by a racial supremacist, uh, nobody wants to disconnect fascist ideas with the endpoint of violence. 
Now, proportionally, global jihadism far, far is a bigger threat to the West than this racial supremacism. But on the one hand, the left wants to connect the ideas of racial uh, bigotry to the violent acts, and yet they don't want to connect political Islam, uh, Islamist supremacy, uh, an inability to criticize clerics and others to the militancy that ends up inspiring the people like the Flint terrorists. And at the end of the day, organizations like Raheel's and ours in America and others, you know, we can do things in America. There's a huge moral responsibility that the prime minister and our and uh, President Obama prior to Trump and others are abrogating, which is we can do things to counter and reform Islam and, and defeat Islamism that you just can't do in Iraq and Syria. So there is a moral imperative to address these things, not only just these whack-a-mole issues, but to try to do things in Islamic organizations. And it's not only countering militancy, but promoting Canadian ideas, Canadian values, American values. That promotion will stomp out these ideas that this guy screamed as he tried to kill that officer. Mm. It's not just saying, well, he's wrong. It's actually promoting the ideas of Canadian freedom and liberty. If you bring up the issue of Canadian values, uh, you can be accused of, and you will be accused of by some, of being of using that as a racist tool. And and that's what happened when I brought up the issue of Canadian values. And I will again on our on our hundred and fiftieth birthday, what Canadian values are. And we've talked about it in a pretty in an objective and straightforward way, but somebody will always jump on it and say, Oh, you're using that in order to attack minorities. I it was the furthest thing from my mind. But it's not the furthest thing from their minds. Now, when we come back, I want to ask you both, please, if what, for example, this federal government in Canada did this year has a significant role to play in what's developing and what we've seen, and that is of the Prime Minister of Canada, and it was his initiative, he said so in 2015 in Winnipeg, it was his initiative that dual citizens who are convicted of a criminal offense, of a terrorism offense in Canada, will not have their Canadian citizenship taken away. The previous government of Stephen Harper had legislation where if you were a dual citizen and convicted of a, of a terrorist act, you could lose your citizenship. As the leader of the so-called Toronto 18 did, their plan was to blow up truck bombs in downtown Toronto in morning rush hour. So the Harper government took away his Canadian citizenship. His other, other citizenship is Jordanian. Trudeau said, we're not going to do that because a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. And so they passed legislation, I think it's Bill C-6, and so he gets his Canadian citizenship back. It may be a small item. It may be negligible with the whole argument. I don't know. I'll ask you both about it when we return. Compassionate, caring, and cuddly. This is The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. A week ago, Bill Cosby's sexual assault trial ended in a mistrial, a hung jury, and now Cosby is out, or is going to be out, on tour and talking about how to avoid accusations of sexual assault by more than 50 women. Mr. Cosby, you know and I know that Bill Cosby is being advised by a crisis manager, and this is leading toward his next trial and is trying to set the stage for the Cosby, the victim. We'll talk to Gloria Allred, the uh, famous civil rights lawyer who was with us last weekend, and uh, one of her clients actually spoke at, uh, testified at the uh, 
at the uh, Cosby trial two weeks ago. Back to the issue of terrorism, political correctness, uh, radicalizing, and what role this country plays or what role we play in, in reminding Canadians what Canada's about. And this brings us, uh, Dr. Zudi Jasser and Raheel Raza, this brings me to the question of Justin Trudeau making lots of noises about a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian and firmly standing and bragging about not removing the citizenship of a dual Canadian citizen who's convicted of terrorism or, you know, preparing to commit a terrorist act. To me, this is a unconscionable decision by the Prime Minister. Rahil, what do you say to that? And I've said this before, and I will repeat it, that I find it personally very offensive uh, that the idea of citizenship can be taken so lightly. For me, citizenship is something that comes with a great sense of responsibility. And you talked about Canadian values. We need to talk more about Canadian values. I can tell you that my family and I came here 30 years ago to embrace the Canadian values of uh, liberal democracy, uh, small and liberal, of uh, freedom of expression, of religious freedom, of uh, freedom of speech, and a separation of church and state. And if we don't talk about this, how will our children grow up with a sense of loyalty to the land in which we live? And let's not forget that intolerance and hate that is taught to young people is what eventually leads to violence. And uh, I find sometimes that this idea of wanting to be liked by the whole world is, uh, causes Canadians to be a bit in, uh, intolerant, uh, uh, sorry, causes them to be tolerant of intolerance. And that is something that we can never allow to happen. We must always speak out against evil, against hate. And uh, if a terrorist is going to harm this country, I don't see why the Canadian citizenship should not be revoked. So it's, it's really a contentious issue with me. Zudi, you, you had a president for eight years who talked a lot about tolerance and who received a lot of mainstream uh, media uh, blessing for being a tolerant, inclusive president. You now have President Trump, who's accused of being a racist and anything but tolerant. What's the truth of it, and what's what's your concept, or what's your what's your assessment of Mr. Trudeau saying, no, you can't lose your citizenship because a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian? Well, I can't tell you how important, Roy, this issue is. It's at the center of why we're losing the war. We might be winning the battle in Iraq now and also maybe in Syria finally, but at the end of the day... The battle globally that we're losing is one of identity. And the only antidote to this global caliphate uh, that has a constituency of 1.6 billion Muslims that are going to be struggling between either belonging to a global jihad, where citizenship means that if you serve in the military, you then belong to a jihad, or they're raised like me, where I served in the military because the only country I belong to and would want to serve for or die for is America or a Western country like Canada. So at the end of the day, this issue of identity, the left and those who want to dilute citizenship into meaning nothing are surrendering, surrendering to political Islam and the Islamic State identity. It's not only ISIS, any Islamic State, be it Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Iran, those Islamic States based in Sharia teach their citizens that bigger than the identity of their secular, non-secular state, but theocratic state, is one belonging to the jihad. And until we start, and, and it's been an absence of leadership. So with an absence of leadership, as we saw under Obama and under Trudeau, we've had sort of this whiplash where now there's been a nativist response with hyper-nationalism and nativism. 
And I hope Trump can recalibrate some of that nativism to really talk about American values, American exceptionalism. What do we stand for in the world? How do we counter uh, the, the Islamist tendency to embrace Muslims that want to belong to their countries rather than simply saying America first? What does America mean? And those values are what I think can finally begin to win the global war that we've so far been missing in action about. Dr. Zudi Jasser, Rahil Raja, thank you both very much for joining us today, and happy Eid to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. God bless. Thank All you. the best. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about Bill Cosby. Sexual assault trial ended in a mistrial with a hung jury, and that was last week. And uh, now Mr. Cosby has announced through his spokespeople that he's planning a speaking tour, and the subject matter is going to be essentially um, how to avoid accusations of sex assault by more than 50 women, by more than 50 women. Gloria Allred is one of the most famous lawyers in the United States, in the world, civil rights attorney in Los Angeles, works uh, for women's rights and has many, many clients, um, several of which, or several of whom, are, uh, are accusing Cosby of sexual impropriety, and one of Ms. Allred's clients testified at uh, Cosby's last trial. He was she, Your client was the only person the judge allowed to testify at the trial, the only woman he allowed to testify who had any sort of encounter with Cosby. Isn't that correct? The only accuser to be permitted to testify, Roy, other than the alleged victim, Andrea Constant. Yes, uh, actually the prosecution wanted to be able to call 13 what we call prior bad act witnesses, in other words, other accusers, uh, but the and the defense wanted zero. But the court only allowed one and did not state why the court would not allow the other 12 that the prosecutor wanted. I'm hoping that in this new trial, the prosecutor will renew his motion to allow the 13 or more uh, to testify, and that also the court will ask, that the prosecutor will ask the court to explain, to give the court's reasoning as to why the court declined to allow the others to testify in the last trial. It's going to be the same judge, so we don't know if he will allow others to testify, but I do think that it may make a big difference if it is allowed. And I think it's important for the jury to have that information uh, because I think it's relevant to the issue of consent and whether Mr. Cosby had a plan or a scheme to drug women, uh, to incapacitate them, and then to sexually assault them. That's very relevant. Uh, on the issue of whether that was done to Andrea Constant. Ms. Allred, it's uh, fair to assume that Mr. Cosby has hired, probably had has in his employ for some time, crisis management professionals. And uh, that becomes fairly obvious when he announced, or at least a spokesperson announced this week, that Mr. Cosby is going to be heading out on a tour. I don't know if it's going to be called the I Really Didn't Do It tour, um, but uh, the idea is that he will be out there uh, trying to explain to people how to avoid accusations of sexual assault. What do you make of this? Well, uh, given the fact that he has not avoided allegations of sexual assault, uh, 
it's kind of strange that uh, bizarre that he would think that he'd be the one qualified to give that kind of speech because he's now facing his second trial on three felony charges of uh, aggravated indecent uh, assault. And then there's also a story that, you know, maybe that what he's trying to do is to suggest that there are many false allegations of sexual assault. The truth is that rape is probably the most underreported crime. Uh, There are many, many women who never report either to law enforcement or to their own family or to attorneys or to friends or coworkers that they've been sexually assaulted. Uh, Very, very few uh, false allegations because lawyers generally will not pursue allegations that they have reason to believe are not true. So I think why you have to ask why would Mr. Cosby be doing this, going out and giving so-called town halls, speeches, workshops, whatever he wants to call them. And I think, Roy, it's really to try to have an impact on the jury pool for the second trial to suggest that somehow he's being falsely uh, accused when, in fact, the prosecutor would not pursue a criminal case. The truth is, unless the prosecutor believed that he had probable cause to believe that he could prove that a crime was committed. Now, he doesn't want it to be a situation where people are discussing um, a famous individual who sexually abused dozens of women. He wants it to be about the poor, famous guy who was taken advantage of by all of these women time yeah, the poor, famous, and again. poor, rich, powerful, formerly well-respected uh, kind of father figure and but it's not you know it's just not that way in other words he's trying to put everybody else on trial other than himself he's trying to play the victim he's not the victim and um and there is going to be a second trial so a jury is going to get to decide the first trial was not a vindication of anybody uh and uh it was not an acquittal it was not a conviction it was just a deadlock, and so there's going to be a retrial. And I've seen many cases where there was a retrial after a mistrial, and often they, they end in conviction. Sometimes they don't, but it's always possible. What do you say to people who vehemently argue that all of these women must have, have it in for Cosby, that they're after money, even after they find out that the statute of limitations has run out and they can't get any money from him. Nevertheless, they'll say, oh, they're just after Cosby, or they want some notoriety. And my question is always, do you really think a woman wants to be gain notoriety as a rape victim? But it, I, I can't sell them on the idea that Cosby could have possibly done anything wrong, because I think in their minds, he's Dr. Huxtable. Well, and I think that's right. They're, they're confusing the character with the person. And we've got to separate them. Uh, And that's really important. And, you know, I heard, you know, there's some interviews with jurors that are remaining anonymous, probably because the judge said, don't give, you know, don't talk about what the jury deliberations were, don't talk about what the vote is. And, um, and of course, some of them are doing it anyway, which is what I fully expected would happen, although they want anonymity. And didn't one of them say that she's at fault because she after all she went to bill cosby's home with a bare midriff and yeah. with with bath salts so this juror who's actively engaged in the decision making on cosby's innocence or not or guilt is 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 judging 
Andrea Constand, not Cosby. He's judging Andrea Constand. Well, that's old, you know, that's the old myth that somehow, depending on what a woman is wearing, she must want to be raped or she must want to have sexual intercourse or whatever. First of all, um, she's an athlete, Andrea Constant. I mean, she was a basketball star, and health is important to her. So who knows? Maybe she came from a workout, you know, where, where women wear clothes like that. That's ridiculous. We don't have to wear burkas and bags over our head in order to be thought that we don't want to be raped. And, and the idea that somehow our clothes are sending a message, yes, go ahead, sexually assault us, is ridiculous. Um, you know, then there was another juror, apparently, Roy, that said something about, well, there was no stain, you know, suggesting that if a woman is racist or sexually assaulted, there's going to be a stain. Well, first of all, Mr. Cosby admitted to digital penetration of Andrea Constance genital area. So there's no issue of whether there was sexual contact. And he's admitted to giving her three pills before that. So the only issue is consent. So why he would be off on that is just mystifying to me. And then somehow another juror apparently was, uh, you know, said something about, well, about the other accusers that maybe they were, you know, they, half of them maybe just wanted fame or something to that effect. Well, first of all, he hasn't even heard from them. He only heard from one accuser during the trial. And um, and and doesn't appear that he was even talking about her. So why he would be taking into account, you know, allegations by other women, which were not admitted during the trial. There was no, in fact, both sides were very careful not to mention any other accusers. I believe they were under an order not to do so. Um, and so yet that's apparently something that matters to this particular juror. Then there's another juror that says something about, well, he's been punished enough that, you know, his reputation and all of that. It's not for a juror to comment on whether what the sentence should be. This is a trial to determine if a person convicted a crime or crimes. And it's not for him to feel sympathy or pity or bias or anything else. This is really very disturbing that jurors would come to that conclusion. If you have a juror saying he's been punished enough, there's your hung jury right there. Yeah, well, obviously there was a hung jury. We don't know what the split was. I mean, there's one that said it was 10 to 2 for for conviction, and there are others that say no, you know, it was more split, no more for acquittal, or some that couldn't decide it. It wasn't 10 to 2, it was 5 to 7, or whatever. I'm sure it kind of moves around during these more than 50 hours of deliberation. We're talking about Bill Cosby, who is going to stand trial again. Same judge, same prosecutor. And uh, it'll be the same charge, sexual assault, of Andrea Constant from Toronto. And Mr. Cosby is going to go on the road, and uh, he's going to be speaking to groups. His spokespeople say he's been asked by organizations to do so. I'd like to know what organizations, name them, please. But his speech is going to be how to avoid accusation of sexual assault. Gloria Allred is uh, with me. She is famed Los Angeles lawyer, as you know, and uh, civil rights lawyer. And several of her clients um, say that they were sexually assaulted or sexually uh, abused by, harassed by Cosby, including uh, one of your clients who was 15 at the time. We've talked about, um, what is her name? 
What is her name? Uh, on Judy Hudson. Judy Hudson. Actually, yeah. I'm going back to court on that on Tuesday in Santa Monica. Uh, it's a trial setting conference. So that, uh, that case is continuing, but the court wanted to await the outcome of the criminal case before deciding on a, a trial date because the court wanted the trial date to be after the uh, criminal case. So, we'll, we'll, of course, we'll see what happens on Tuesday. But uh, we are continuing to litigate that case, and we're looking forward at some point, probably after the next criminal trial, to be able to take Mr. Cosby's second deposition in that case. Will you be confronting Bill Cosby in the next few days then? Well, no, directly? because he doesn't need to show up for okay. you know, a trial setting conference. But, does it does uh, it does it concern you that he might be able to with his tour and understanding what already happened with jurors in the first trial that he may be able to poison the well as it were and create this image for himself as the now somewhat doddering 80-year-old being dragged into a courtroom when he couldn't possibly have done the things that he's said to have done, because after all, he's told you he hasn't. Does it worry you that he may be able to create some sort of empathetic reality in that area where the jury pool is going to be selected from? Well, of course, he only, and he only uh, yeah, I do think that the strategy of trying of going on this tour is an attempt to have an impact on the jury pool for the second trial, and I think that's part of the defense strategy. Um, so I don't think it's a, just an accident that he's doing it now. People say, well, gee, why would he be doing it now? Well, that's because I think he's a, attempting to influence the jury pool from which jurors will be selected for the second trial. That's what I think is this is the main reason that he's doing it. Uh, now, it's interesting, too, you point out it is his position of at least some of the supporters in the past is, oh, my gosh, he's almost 80 years old. And look, he's, uh, you know, he's almost blind, and how can you retry him and all of that? And yet, at the same time, he put out that he would like to return to the theater and do his show. Okay, well, now it sounds like he's not returning to the theater, but it's a different kind of theater. He's going to go and give these speeches at town halls. Well, you know, it's, he, that takes a pretty active person to be able to do that mm-hmm. and go on stage and do that. Uh, it would seem like it would be easier to sit in a courtroom uh, while your lawyers do the work. All you have to do is sit there and listen. Uh, but it sounds like he's got enough energy to go out on the uh, on the speaking circuit, but not enough energy to sit in a courtroom. How does that make sense? We have a little less than a minute left. If Mr. Cosby continues to create any kind of empathy for himself or pity or doubt, that is going to cause some issues for other women, not necessarily engaged with Cosby, maybe some are, but other women who might have felt encouraged to step forward because they would have felt that, okay, maybe I can come forward and talk about what happened to me. Well, yes, exactly. And he is trying to create doubt uh, because they only need one person in on a jury to hang it up, right. to create a deadlock, to have yet another mistrial. And that's all that they need. The prosecution needs 12 in order to convict uh, or for an acquittal. But they, uh, but the defense only needs one. I hope that other women will continue to come forward. I know that you'll encourage them to do it right. on other cases as well, not just Cosby. Yeah, but, and seek the advice of private attorneys about what your rights and responsibilities okay. are. I, sorry, and go I have to, to law enforcement. Sorry, I have to cut you off. Satellite That's okay. Thanks for the time. Always good talking to you. You too. Thank you, Roy. Bye bye. Gloria Allred. When we come back, we'll talk to the former executive officer, General David Petraeus, about North Korea.
You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. With me is uh, Colonel Peter Mansour. Colonel Mansour was the executive officer to uh, General David Petraeus in uh, in Iraq. And uh, his book, he's written several books. The most recent is Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. Colonel Mansour, uh, give me 30 seconds on uh, of, your, of your thinking on that, that shot by the Canadian sniper, 2.1 miles. You know, I read that over the weekend. I posted it on my Facebook page, and I put two words, Oh, Canada, exclamation point. That was simply astonishing. You don't know how hard that is. That, that bullet must have dropped at least 10 feet in the air uh, going that distance. It's, it's unbelievable that uh, the skill that that marksman had. And, uh, and he did it to save uh, the lives of uh, comrades on the battlefield. So well done. Yeah. Um, I was thinking you'd have to have a, a Ph.D. In, in physics and be able to do it all in his head as he's calculating the shot. You know, um, I'm sure that we have modern devices that could help him out, but uh, there is a lot of practice that goes into uh, these snipers' uh, training, and uh, and he is clearly a, one well-trained uh, soldier. Let's talk about what's going on with North Korea. You and I have done this before. At least uh, you've provided us with insights, and here we are with the North Koreans ready to launch another nuclear test, and they also sent a 22-year-old Otto Warmbier back to the United States in a deep coma, uh, they said after um, after some medical condition, he'd been sentenced to hard labor in prison after trying to steal a poster from a hotel wall. Now he's uh, he's dead, 22-year-old. And North Korea says they're the ones who are being maligned. Do you think that the Otto Warmbier story is part of a North Korean strategy? Uh, no, actually, I think um, they weren't ready. Uh, for him to uh, to have that sort of condition, uh, they probably tortured him uh, and thought he would recover, and he didn't. You know, uh, Otto is from Ohio, which is where I'm based, and uh, it's hit the state pretty hard. A lot of angry, uh, angry Americans down here, and no love lost for uh, North Korea or its regime, that's for sure. But I don't think it was um, part of a strategy. I think um, rather than have him die in in their captivity, they they released him. Um, and, of course, he died shortly thereafter. Right. I should have mentioned that you're the General Raymond E. Mason, Jr. Chair in Military History at The Ohio State University. Um, Another nuclear test, Colonel Mansour, by the North Koreans. Are they trying to provoke um, a limited war of some kind? They have a, a huge military. They clearly have nuclear capacity certainly in a regional sense. Do you think they're trying to provoke a war, thinking that ultimately China will stand by them? There's something, I mean, who can possibly read the mind of um, that little guy who runs the country? Kim Jong-un. I I think there's a couple things going on here. Uh, One is uh, they are trying to miniaturize their their nuclear devices to be able to put them on on top of a missile. And so these tests are uh, probably a deliberate... um, attempt uh, to try to advance their their craft in in making nuclear weapons the other thing though that north korea has done ever since the 1990 early 1990s is they use these sort of provocative tests and missile launches to force uh, uh, the united states and our allies into negotiations 
which then they exact concessions, whether it's in the form of food aid or other concessions. Um, and then they uh, calm down for a while, and then they ramp things back up when they want more concessions. And so this is, this is part of a deliberate strategy that they use. Uh, but it's a dangerous game they're playing right now. Well, the last time we spoke, I asked you uh, whether war was possible within 48 hours. The dynamics of, of the time, and it was about two, three months ago, led people to suggest that possibly war could break out within a matter of hours. And you didn't discount that possibility. I'll ask you in a broader sense, given that we don't know, I don't know how much the military planners and the people who investigate psychologically who these leaders are, but given this this new Korean leader's pension for odd decisions, is war possible and is a limited regional nuclear war possible with him? And then question Two is, or part B of it is, if that scenario hasn't been entirely dismissed by war planners, is there a contingency in place to attack North Korea with nukes if necessary? I think the answer is yes on all three uh, points. The third, the the actual plans, I'm not familiar with, so I I can't answer for sure. I would be astonished if there weren't plans on the shelf uh, to attack North Korea to destroy its nuclear program, given that it could potentially pose an existential threat to the United States and Canada, for that matter. Um, the, uh, the likelihood of war really depends on the comfort that the Trump administration has with North Korea acquiring a nuclear uh, a device capable of hitting a, a West Coast city. Um, if they're, they're comfortable with that scenario and they think that Kim Jong-un can be deterred uh, by the threat of uh, regime change, then, um, then we might not um, have hostilities. But if the Trump administration decides that they don't want to take a chance of an unhinged dictator having a nuclear weapon that can hit San Francisco or Los Angeles or Seattle or Vancouver, then um, they may decide to strike uh, when that when the capability, when North Korea appears to be close to getting that capability or crosses over that threshold. And this is what makes this particular moment in time so different from the 1990s and the 2000s, because it was highly unlikely in those two decades that North Korea would have a missile capable of hitting the United States. But um, now it looks like it's uh, very, very possible within a matter of uh, uh, months or years. And would there be any other way to attack them effectively and destroy their nuclear capability without attacking them with nuclear weapons? Um, yeah, we have a lot of conventional uh, firepower that uh, properly employed could uh, potentially take out uh, their nuclear facilities. But, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how, how deeply buried they are underground and how hardened they are um, and it's tough to say. And there's a lot of diplomacy to play out before that happens. Right. Uh, pressure via China, pressure via additional sanctions, uh, perhaps even uh, cyber warfare. Of course, North Korea is using cyber war against the United States and the rest of the world, for that matter, um, already. And so there's, there's a lot of other tools that are going to come into play before we get to the uh, edge of war. But war, again, is certainly possible. And Colonel Mansour, you can't have this um, 
this maniac um, threatening the world. He's no pun intended. He really is a loose cannon. And if he has uh, a military with a, a million members in the military, and within just a matter of a few miles, you've got Seoul, South Korea, with a population of over 20 million people. This is very, very serious business, and he's not going to be allowed to, he can't be allowed to continue the way he is. Well, that's, that's right there is the tough thing. If you want to strike North Korea, uh, take out its nuclear capability, take out its uh, missiles, um, they can retaliate by using conventional artillery against Seoul and kill a lot of people. At that point, we would be into a full-scale war, and the only outcome of that would be regime change in North Korea. Um, of course, that would leave several million people dead, lots of refugees flowing over the border into Canada, into uh, uh, China, and, um, and potentially uh, Japan hit as well. So it is not a great scenario in any uh, conceivable uh, future, but it's one that we have to face, unfortunately. And how would the threat of North Korea and all the parameters you've explained to us in the last 10 minutes, how would those compare, as far as danger is concerned, global danger is concerned, to the jihadists and, and ISIS and al-Qaeda? Which one uh, poses the greater threat, or are they equal? Uh, it's, we have there are various fronts in this world today where there's real real serious concern well by far north korea poses the larger threat in terms of the number of people that could get killed uh, i think that the jihadists have a greater capability of attacking the united states or canada or europe uh, with terrorism but those terrorist attacks as as horrific as they are only kill dozens maybe hundreds of people at a time unless the jihadists were able to get uh, a weapon of mass destruction and employ it uh, they will always be uh, a threat, but not an existential threat to the West. North Korea, on the other hand, uh, with uh, nuclear weapons and the ability uh, to deliver them via missile to the West Coast of North America is, is an existential threat, and it, therefore it's in a different category. Colonel Mansour, I always appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so very much. Always a pleasure, Roy. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.